Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This episode of Demystified was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you'd like to support the show from as little as one to pound a month, you can do so on Patreon or even just follow us on Twitter at demystified underscore pod. Please do. It does help the show. Now, back to the regularly scheduled programming as we close out Season 4. November 13th, 1915. A cameraman is filming one of the most extraordinary and unfortunate moments in Arctic exploration history. Some sled dogs watch curiously, whilst others gather round in a mixture of awe and mourning. The leader is pensive. What he's watching is his ship sink. The Endurance, a ship that's been their home for the past year, that he had spent no insignificant amount of money on acquiring, and was supposed to bear them to and from this frozen frontier in safe order, is now being driven below the waves. Not that she's been much good to them for a while now. For the past six months she's been stuck in pack ice, usually a bearable fate for an Antarctic exploration vessel, but this time things have gone differently, and worse. There are two ways things can go if you're on a polar vessel that's been stuck in the ice. Firstly, it can drive you up. The ship might get forced 30 or 40 foot upwards, but you can ride the wave, as it were. It could also drive you under, split you in two and crush you with the waist. If you're on the ship when this happens, then you get to watch a ship sinking in slow motion. Although there's usually ample time to abandon ship before that point, the bad news is you're now on a sheet of sea ice without a ship. Solemn looks are exchanged as with a great cracking sound the masts splinter, beams break and the groaning of the ice matches the sounds coming from the hull. The main mast splits and the mizzen mast too. They collide and go down together. They ordered the ensign be flown so that she would go down flying the colours. Within ten days the rest of her would be gone too. On the 21st November, the last wave of pressure hits and the wreck goes beneath the ice. Soon it'll freeze over, condemning her to a watery grave. As sad as this is for the ship, there's now a detachment of men and dogs thousands of miles from safe harbour on a floating chunk of sea ice. If it warms up, the ice will shrink and drift and eventually it will be nothing at all, and they'd better hope they're not on it when that happens. If it stays cold, they're left with no shelter in the coldest place in the world. This is the sort of situation that no person would ever wish to find themselves in. They end up shooting the dogs, of course, the difficulty of feeding them was unsustainable, but their little camp on the sea ice was far shrinking, and that also meant they had no way of reaching the Antarctic mainland. If they got there, they could build shelter. That was getting less and less likely by the day. So they make some more hard decisions. They've got the ship's lifeboats with them, all named for the financial sponsors of the expedition who are about to get some amazing PR, and they need to decide where to go next. The object of their affections are the sometimes visited South Shetland Islands, where a whaler could pick them up. But crossing the icy sea in open boats, constantly splashed with ice waters in outside temperatures as low as negative 30, meant that they needed to choose the nearest safe haven. That safe haven was the uninhabited and desolate Elephant Island. This place was, as well as being barren and foreboding, not commonly visited by anybody at all. But it's the closest place they can rest up, regain some strength. Their leader, known to his men as Boss, 
makes one more tough decision. Hope of rescue here on Elephant Island is slim, but they can't stay forever. He's got another entire detachment of men on the other side of Antarctica to worry about too, but they haven't had contact with them for some time, so they're on their own. He knows that to get help for both his men here and those further away, he needs to get help. Doing so is going to be a Herculean task. He picks five men to go with him and sets about preparing one of the lifeboats for something it was never meant to do, an 800-mile journey across open ocean. A makeshift deck is added, providing something of a hull space. They add two masts and give a raquette rig. They add one long ton of weight, knowing that anything smaller would capsize on the first big wave. They took supplies for only one month. Boss knows that if they haven't reached safety by then, they're dead already. They set off on the 24th of April 1916, the beginning of winter. Their destination was South Georgia, small, remote, but inhabited, and with the prevailing winds they reckoned that they could just about make it. But this relied on dead reckoning, open water navigation, done in some of the fiercest waves and winds imaginable on a boat that wasn't designed for that in good circumstances. Frank Worsley, the ship's captain, had to use brief glimpses of the sun at select times of a given day to calculate their positions. The waves were some of the biggest they'd ever seen. The winds got up to nine on the Beaufort scale, i.e. strong enough to rip the tiles off of a house roof. Two days after their launch, they'd made good progress, but they now faced the Drake Passage. This is the most dangerous sailing route in terms of weather and waves in the entire world. The reason for this is there's no significant landmass at that latitude, so when a wave starts to roll around the world, it keeps rolling, picking up immense power and topping out regularly at over 40 feet high, sometimes reaching 60 feet. In spite of being constantly cold due to their non-waterproof clothes being constantly soaked with icy water, they couldn't use their stove to cook hot food. The ship rocked and rolled too much for that. On the 6th of May, they were 150 nautical miles from that goal, but one of the men had collapsed, no longer able to meaningfully participate in the necessary duties. Of the three-man watches instituted, one of those men spent his entire watch bailing out water. There was another problem. If they aimed for the inhabited side of the island, they risked being blown off course. They couldn't be exactly sure where they were, and overshooting meant where they would have to sail against the wind back the way they came. So, they agreed to aim for the uninhabited side of the island. On the 8th, they sighted land and they spent the next two days waiting offshore in a hurricane, desperately trying not to be dashed to atoms on the rocks. On the 10th, they landed. It's been over two weeks in open ocean, navigating using their eyes and some decent maths in the most dangerous waterway in the world. They moved up shores a ways and spent several days resting. The boat was totaled. They couldn't sail it any further, so they turned it into shelter. But they weren't done yet. Three of the men were basically spent at this point, and whilst they were on solid ground, they still had the men on Elephant Island and the men back in Antarctica. The boss and his two remaining men, Tom Crean and Frank Worsley, now had to cross the unmapped, uncharted interior of South Georgia Island, which was also comprised of glacial mountains. Not hills, mountains. They didn't have mountaineering gear, so they shoved nails through their boots to act as crampons, took 50 feet of rope and a carpenter's adze, which is like a pickaxe crossed with a chisel. The trek would take 36 hours in freezing temperatures. According to one account, Crean and Worsley asked for 30 minutes sleep. Shackleton gave them that. Five minutes later, he woke them up, telling them their 30 minutes was up. Not to be a dick, but because it had gotten so cold, and the three of them were so weak, that had he let them sleep any longer, they would have died, and the entire crew was counting on them. They arrived at the Stromness whaling station on the 20th of May. Their hair was matted, their clothes were rotting off of their bodies. They were malnourished and sleep-deprived, 
and covered in the dust of blubber they had burnt for fuel. The first question that Ernest Shackleton, the man known as Boss, asked the Norwegian whaling captain in charge of the station when he'd relayed the danger that his men were in, was, Oh, by the way, when did that war end? The station manager looked at him. The war's not over. Millions are being killed. The whole world has gone mad. You see, when Shackleton had set off in 1914, the First World War had just started, and they went ahead with the Admiralty's blessing, the whole thing will be done by Christmas. Two years later, not only was it ongoing, but was quickly one of the deadliest conflicts in all of human history up to that point. But Shackleton's role in this was not over. After a clean shave and a hot meal, he set about rescuing his men. But the party that had been with him in the Endurance sank, though it would take several months to get them, not a single man was lost. For the other party in the Ross Sea, three men had died, but other than that, no others. The situation had been made all the worse by the fact that the Great War had been raging at the time. When they got home, the world had forgotten about them. Last week was a doozy of a survival story, but this one takes the cake, douses it in icy seawater for six months, sails it across the southern ocean for two weeks, takes it 3,000 foot up a glacial mountain range for 36 hours, and then eats it too. There's a famous quote about the man they call Boss. For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, you get down on your knees, and you pray for Shackleton. This week on Demystified, we round off the season of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration by looking at the boss, Ernest Shackleton, and the 1914 Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. We've talked about Ernest Shackleton a lot these past few weeks, in passing and in detail in one episode. That's because his figure, almost more than the others, looms large over the heroic age. He is that heroic leader. He's well regarded and respected by his men, and when the chips are down, no one else can lead him like he can. But is that really true? It is true that the situation he got those men out of was one of the most dire that anyone anywhere in the world of all time has ever beaten, possibly beaten only by the guys up in Apollo 13 for how screwed on a scale of 1 to 100. Let's dive straight in, because this is a long one. Ernest Shackleton was born on the 15th of February 1874 in County Kildare, Ireland. At this time, Ireland was part of the British Empire, and that was part of his family's history. His ancestry was English, from Yorkshire, but successive generations had moved to Ireland and settled as farmers, though not in the north, as many others would. When his father had retrained from being a farmer to being a doctor, yeah, the family moved from Dublin to London when Shackleton was 10 in search of better prospects. Another suspected reason was the worries that their English ancestry would make them targets for Irish nationalists, but Shackleton always considered himself Irish, frequently stating so when those tried to claim him as British. He attended Dulwich College, whose Shanghai branch I actually went to in middle school, and they had a house named after him there. But he was not a particularly great student, often bored by his studies. He managed to turn it around in his final year, but this wasn't enough to quell his restlessness, and at the age of 16 he was allowed to leave school and go to sea. He had three options now. First was a Navy cadetship, but his family couldn't afford it. The second was a job in the Merchant Marine, a cadetship equivalent. The third, which he went with, was working for a shipping company and learning before the mast, i.e. doing the shit jobs of an able seaman and earning your qualification that way. Over the next four years he sailed all over the world, working with the Northwestern Shipping Company. 
More than his skills as a sailor, however, Shackleton developed great interpersonal skills, becoming adept at winning over people that he'd just met no matter where they were from. From here we joined the story where we last left him, back in the Discovery Expedition in 1901. He got rated as a mate and then a master, and whilst working in the Boer War, he met a guy whose dad was organising that expedition, he got a place on it. That story we'll skip over for now, save some key details, because we did the deep dive in it back in episode 2. Discovery is where Shackleton makes a name for himself as a polar explorer. He's one of the men who sets further south and does very well for himself, but it's also where he becomes the rival of Scott. Scott being bathed in glory for that expedition meant that Shackleton needed to outdo him in his own expedition. So we spend several years ashore before going back on the Nimrod expedition, which we also talked about in the same episode, so we'll skip for brevity. Here he sets the new further south record, but manages to just miss out on actually getting to the South Pole. After this, Shackleton becomes the talk of the town. He gets his own showerings of glory and honours. He's also massively in debt, though, to the tune of what would today be over one and a half million pounds, cleared only by generous patronage and a government grant. It's cold comfort for Shackleton in 1913. Scott didn't make it to the pole because he died. Amundsen did, however which means that the final great achievement of the Antarctic Exploration Age has been snatched away. Or has it? There's one more card to play. He thinks one more achievement to make. Nobody has ever managed to cross Antarctica. He wasn't the only one to think this. In 1911, a German expedition had attempted that, for the purposes of establishing whether or not Antarctica was one single continent or several smaller floating islands. They never managed to get their inroads off the ground, though, and they left for home without that feather in their caps in 1913. He had some help from William Spears Bruce, an explorer we've mentioned before, most famous for the Scottish Antarctic expedition. He'd wanted to do the same thing, but never managed to get around to it, so he gave some of his prep to Shackleton. On the 29th of December 1913, after securing the first donation of £10,000 from the government, contingent on getting later money, Shackleton published a letter of announcement in the Times of his intentions. He'd called it the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, because he'd intended to recruit people from all over the British Empire, rather than just the British Isles. The plan was this. They'd have two parties and two ships. One would go to the Weddell Sea, aboard the ship the Endurance, and this group would land at Vasel Bay. From here, a six-man team, led by Shackleton, would cross the continent, passing through the South Pole and across the Beardmore Glacier. In the meantime, the other party, on a ship called the Aurora, would head to McMurdo Sound in the Ross Sea, and the other side of the continent, and would start laying depots. The idea was that the Weddell Sea Party would cross the continent with the end of their supplies and use the depots laid by the Ross Sea Party to complete their journey and then meet up with the Ross Sea Party on their end and go home. The expedition wasn't going to be cheap. The low end estimates, the low ball, was about £50,000, just shy of £5 million today, and decided to try and get this from a small number of wealthy backers, which would hopefully make repaying them easier. Spoiler alert, it wouldn't. At first, getting the donations was difficult. Very few people wanted to pitch in, and the donations coming in were small. Then, three key donations came from Dudley Docker, of the BSA Weapons and Motorbike Manufacturing, of £10,000. Janet Stancombe Wills, a tobacco heiress, gave an unspecified but presumably huge amount. And James Key Caird, a Scottish textiles baron, donated £24,000, which is a ludicrous sum. But with these donations, and the three lifeboats named after them, wink wink, Shackleton was able to go ahead. They acquired the two ships. The Endurance was originally called the Polaris, which had been built for our old pal Adrian de Gerlache for a planned expedition to Svalbard that didn't go ahead. The Aurora you may remember from last week as Douglas Mawson's ship. It was purchased at what I gotta assume must have been a discounted price, given how much cheaper it was than the Polaris. Altogether, the final estimate cost of the whole thing, expedition, was around £80,000, but we don't know how much Stancombe Willis donated, so we don't know how far in the hole Shackleton was when they launched. As we'll find out later, though, 
pretty significantly. The money problems would persist. When Aeneas McIntosh, leader of the Rossi party, landed in Australia, he found that Shackleton had halved his budget and had to beg and borrow to finalise his equipment. Still, they offset some of the costs by selling exclusive rights to the Daily Chronicle and formed a film company to make a film of their trip and sell it. In terms of personnel, legend has it that Shackleton posted this announcement. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return? Doubtful. Honour and recognition in event of success. We don't know if that particular advertisement was ever actually run, but we do know that when he made his announcement, he received no fewer than 5,000 applications, the most surprising of which came from, quote, three sporty girls, who had apparently said they'd be fine dressing in men's clothes to deal with the cold. This was somewhat controversial in 1914. The personnel were trimmed down to 28 men on each ship, which includes some surprising twists. The most famous of these was when a man named William Bakewell joined on in Buenos Aires. He was an American, but was pretending to be Canadian to get the go-ahead to join. Now, Bakewell had a friend, an 18-year-old Welshman named Perce Blackborough. Now, Blackborough was not allowed to join the expedition, despite his intrepidness because of his youth. But he ended up stowing away on the Endurance. We'll get back to him later. Frank Wilde was our second in command, the Antarctic regular and a veteran of both Shackleton and Mawson's expeditions. John King Davis, Mawson's captain, didn't come along due to bad vibes in the planning, so instead of Davis, Frank Walsley was made captain. His application was apparently made after having a vivid dream in which he saw himself joining up, and once he awoke, it was the first thing he did. Tom Crean had been on the Terra Nova expedition, was signed on as second officer. An A.S. McIntosh, who would lead the Ross Sea Party, had been with Shackleton on Nimrod, but had lost an eye in an accident. The one of the notable for now is Frank Hurley, who, if you recall, was with Mawson. The pioneering Australian photographer and filmographer was looking for more work. On the 8th of August 1914, the Endurance left Plymouth for Buenos Aires. Shackleton would join them there, as he was stuck doing business organising the last of the supplies and funds. The one issue that plagued him now was the First World War, which Britain had joined five days prior. Shackleton was concerned that not only would a huge swath of his crew, who were either on leave from the Navy or in the Navy or former Navy men, would either be called up or go to join up. He asked Winston Churchill, at the time First Lord of the Admiralty, whether he should carry on with the expedition, and after some difficult decision-making, Churchill gave them the go-ahead. After all, the whole thing will be over by Christmas. Shackleton had actually offered to cancel the expedition on principle back when it was in its planning stages and war was looming. They'd lost several prospective members due to signing up in anticipation, and when they docked in Buenos Aires, they did end up losing several more men who returned home to fight. In Buenos Aires, Hurley joins, as does Bakewell, and Blackborough, in secret. On the 26th of October, they head for South Georgia, the next stop on their way to the Antarctic. Three days later, when there's no chance of turning back to Argentina, Blackborough breaks out of the box he's locked in. He was immediately taken to be questioned before Shackleton and the crew, and was so badly cramped from three days in a box that he couldn't actually stand and was questioned in a chair. Shackleton was, according to those who were there, absolutely beside himself with rage. In front of the entire crew, he flew into a furious tirade that was so terrifying and so unlike him that the two men who had helped him come aboard, Bakewell and another man called Walter Howe, stepped forward and identified themselves. Shackleton finished this performance by quipping, You do realise if we run out of food, the stowaway is always the first to be eaten, if there's one available. Blackborough replied, Well, they get a lot more meat off of you than me, sir. Shackleton was apparently amused by this, and, not to be outdone, introduced Blackborough to the cook first. 
This ended up being a condition of his joining, by the way, whether facetious or not. When he'd proved himself to be capable and was well-liked by the crew and Shackleton, he was signed on officially, providing he was willing to be the first eaten if they ran out of food. They arrived at South Georgia on the 5th November, but soon ran into problems. They had intended to start their crossing in the 1914-15 season, but when Shackleton decided this wasn't going to be the case, he didn't tell the Ross Sea Party. A planned telegram was, for some reason, never sent. They left for the Antarctic a month later, but their progress was impossibly slow due to pack ice. Throughout December and January, they looked for leads through the ice, but it was far thicker than expected. At one point, they considered choosing a site that was clear, but Shackleton considered it too far north. This would prove a bad move. By the 14th of February 1915, Shackleton was now realising that his ship was stuck. Of course, they'd been stuck for a while, but Shackleton now had to face the reality that they were going to be stuck all winter, and would have to deal with the inevitable drift. A ship's recent ordeal of being stuck in pack ice in this same area but two years prior had been relatively kind to them, so Shackleton hoped for a similar experience. He disembarked the dogs and housed them in Dogloos, igloos made into kennels, which is the cutest name for anything ever. They set about to winter activities, and wasn't much to do when drifting in pack ice, but still, gotta keep occupied. Come March, though, things were looking a little worse. The ice was piling up against the hull of the ship and the crew soon started to notice that the pressure on the hull was growing stronger every day and winter hadn't even begun. Still, they kept occupied with moonlit walks, dog races, theatrical productions and other entertainment. By July, things had deteriorated pretty significantly. The ice was starting to break into pieces around them and gale storms sped that process up which was forcing the ice under and around the ship, increasing the pressure. She was soon listing hard to port at a sharp angle and the crew were becoming increasingly concerned that the hull couldn't take much more. Things looked like they were starting to calm down. Until on the 30th September, waves of pressure racked the ship and the noise was unbearable. Frank Worsley described it as being akin to being a shuttlecock in a game of badminton, being smacked about from side to side. Over the next month, the hull began to crack and splinter. Water was forced into the ship from the ice and the noises were likened to gunshots or fireworks. Even if they did get free... You'd need extensive repairs to float her seaworthy again, and it didn't look like they were getting free anytime soon. This goes to show you how luck can really affect your chances. De Gerlash made it out after one winter with no significant hull damage, though with a mad dash and only barely. Franklin's men were stuck for nearly five years after abandoning the ships after three years in the ice. Shackleton's ship, after just one winter, was done for. And done for it was. On the 27th October, they moved the lifeboats and supplies onto the ice and tried to stabilise the ship and pump the water, but it was no use. Despite being 25 below, the order was given to abandon ship, and we arrive at our starting point for part one. The next few weeks were spent salvaging what could be taken from the ship as the wreckage began to deteriorate, and it was obvious the ship was never going to float again. Within time, the ship would crack and split, and then disappear on the 21st November, never to be seen again. Attempts to find the wreck of the Endurance have narrowed down its location, but have not actually been able to find the ship itself. For Shackleton, this was now major red alert disaster time. He had no ship, and all his men, dogs and equipment were stashed on a slab of pack ice. The idea of ever trying to cross the continent was up in smoke. He now just had to get home in one piece. The first and most obvious plan was to walk it out, not back home, but across the ice to Powlett Island, where a depot of preserved food had been left by Shackleton himself 12 years earlier. In preparation for this, the weakest of the animals were shot, including those who had become pets like the ship's cat. The carpenter, McNish, who the cat was extremely affectionate towards, never forgave Shackleton for ordering the cat shot. But a pin in that for later. 
They started their walk on the 30th of October. But the problem was that sea ice isn't smooth. It spikes up and dives down in weird shapes, and this impeded their progress. After getting barely two miles in three days, they gave up and made camp on a seemingly stable bit of ice flow, continuing to revisit the Endurance to scavenge it until she finally sank. The drifting soon became a problem, as it was making the eventual lifeboat journey increasingly unlikely to succeed. On the 23rd of December, they continued on another march, this time making for Powder Island with a more urgent deadline. But now it was actually too warm. The men were getting stuffy in their cold-weather clothes, sinking in the increasingly soft snow, and the carpenter McNish refused to work. He argued that because the endurance was lost, admiralty law didn't apply, so he didn't have to follow orders. And he would be technically correct, usually, but their contract specifically had a special clause that made him wrong. Shackleton stood firm, and eventually won out and regained control over the party. Having realised that the actual reaching of Powlett Island was now basically impossible, given the difficulty of making any real progress, they made another camp and continued to drift. Supplies began to run low. For months, they subsisted on seal meats to try and keep as much of the preserved stuff as possible. In January, they shot all but two of the dog teams, shooting the final two teams on the 2nd of April, 1915. We'll check back in with Shackleton in a bit. What happened to the Aurora, though? Well, they'd been late in arriving in McMurdo Sound, getting there in January of 15, and due to this delay, McIntosh commanded that the work on the depot laying begin immediately. He supervised this and leaving Chief Officer Joseph Stenhouse in charge of the ship, with the explicit order of finding a safe winter berth. Now, the only safe winter berth in McMurdo Sound that was known was the one that Scott had used on Discovery, the Hut Point camp area. But because Scott's ship had taken two years and explosives to get free of the ice, Shackleton had ordered them to berth north of this. This was related to Stenhouse, even though pretty much every experienced seaman involved with the expedition disagreed with it and told Stenhouse to ignore that order, as the north side hadn't been proven safe. Stenhouse ended up choosing Cape Evans, from Terra Nova, as his berthing, but the winter proved impossibly fierce in this unsheltered area. The winds violently threw the ship from side to side, and while some of the supplies were disembarked, large amounts remained on the ship. On the 6th of May, a violent gust of wind broke the moorings of the Aurora, and, encased in the block of pack ice, she began to drift away from shore. Stenhouse tried to use the engines to get back, but even if they hadn't been disassembled for winter, they weren't powerful enough to bring them back to shore. Eighteen men were now on a ship, rapidly and uncontrollably drifting away with half the supplies, and ten men were on shore, now with no ship, with only half supplies. You can see the problem here, I presume. Stenhouse, at just 26 years old, was actually relatively calm in this situation. He tried to maintain the ship as best he could and make sure he knew where they were, but worried that without the supplies they had on board, the men on shore were going to die in the coming winter. The Aurora would spend the next few months drifting further and further out into the Southern Ocean, with Stenhouse doing an admirable job of keeping morale up and the ship in decent shape. By Christmas, they were looking like they might be able to get free soon, and make hard sail for New Zealand to get reinforcements and celebrate it with a Christmas feast, although Stenhouse and a number of the others felt guilty that they were feasting when their ten companions were undoubtedly starving. They constantly tried to radio for help, but the efforts were blocked by high winds tearing the masts down and interference. However, during some freak weather conditions, they were actually able to get a message out to New Zealand and then later to Hobart and Tasmania, and transmit some information about their plight. When Winston Churchill learned about this, however, he allegedly said, quote, When all the sick and wounded have been tended, and all the impoverished and broken homes have been restored, and when every hospital is gorged with money and every charitable subscription is closed, then and only then will I concern myself with these penguins. End quote. 
Winston Churchill, everybody, the man who greenlit this expedition and told them it was all going to be fine. What a dick. On the 14th of March 1916, after 312 days in the ice and a drift of over 1,600 nautical miles, they were free of the ice and made full steam to New Zealand. They had hoped to make a fast turn around back in December, but now they were going to have to wait until the following spring to relieve their comrades. Stenhouse was actually the first one to make it back to civilization of the various parties and their leaders, hence why we're talking about him right now. When he got to New Zealand, he learned that Shackleton hadn't been heard from either, and assumed that they must also be in serious trouble. But Stenhouse was facing two problems. Firstly, the expedition's total funds were long since gone, and the repairs and refueling of the Aurora to go and actually help the men at Cape Evans would need to be funded in some other nebulous and inconceivable way. Secondly, the powers that were in the British government perceived that even if they did need help, Shackleton's men were the higher priority than Stenhouse's friends in McMurdo Sound. We'll return to Stenhouse in a bit because he spends the next while trying to work out a plan of action until someone else comes along. Back to Shackleton. It was now clear that the Powlett Island was a no-go. The sea ice was too broken to cross properly and new plans would need to be put into motion. These plans were expedited when, on the 8th of April 1915, the ice floe that they were on split in two. Their camp, which they named Patience Camp, was now on a tiny raft of ice, and if that broke, they would all be fucked. So they decided they needed to leave now. Their plan was Deception Island, because there was a small wooden church there that could provide shelter, and if necessary, timber. The three lifeboats were launched. Shackleton commanded the James Caird, Worsley commanded the Docker, and Hubert Hudson, the navigator, commanded the Stancombe Willis, though due to his declining mental state, Tom Crean was effective commander of that boat. Progress was bad. The ships had to be constantly dragged onto the ice floes when the weather was being erratic and constant dowsing in icy water was wearing the men down. Now they were aiming for Elephant Island, the closest of their possible destinations. They arrived there by the 15th of April, making landfall and took stock of their situation. Elephant Island was desolate, and despite having plentiful penguins and seals to hunt, it was completely windswept, which in the Antarctic winter would mean gale forces blowing across the flat island. It was also not a place that was ever visited by anyone, so it was now clear that one of their number would need to actually go for rescue. The only practical way for that to happen, and that was using the word practical in the loosest possible definition, was to shore up one of the lifeboats and sail the 800 miles to South Georgia, across the Southern Ocean, in winter. The nearest actual inhabited port was Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands, but the prevailing winds made this a bad choice, so South Georgia was chosen instead. Deception Island was also still on the table, technically, but remember, it was uninhabited. Even if they got there, there wouldn't necessarily be a guaranteed rescue. The conditions they faced were near suicidal. The waves of the Drake Passage, called the Cape Horn Rollers, could be as high as 60 foot to crest, regularly reaching 40 foot. James Caird, being the heaviest of the boats, was selected, and McNish was once again employed in the task of upgrading the boats, which he had done at Patience Camp. Several major modifications were made. The lifeboat was given a deck made of wood and canvas, and the lower areas were filled with ballast to increase the weight. The boat was then crammed with supplies, and two sails were added and rigged. McNish, by the way, was doing all of this with improvised tools. He was mixing a sealant out of paint, seal blood, and lamp oil. Shackleton took one month's worth of food for the party. He knew that by the time it would run out, they would either be safe or dead. His selections were interesting. He took Worsley and Crean because he trusted them, but omitted Frank Wilde because he wanted him to take charge of the remaining men on Elephant Island. He then offered two places to volunteers and picked John Vincent and Timothy McCarthy, two of the stronger sailors able to participate. He then took the carpenter, McNish. 
Now, it was recorded that Shackleton had some doubts about Vincent and McNish earlier in the expedition, but both had proved extremely capable on the journey to Elephant Island. Still, some speculate that he took them with him to keep potential troublemakers closer to him, rather than letting them stew on Elephant Island. On the 24th of April 1916, the James Caird, now as good as he could ever be at crossing an ocean, departed, utilising the strong prevailing winds to make good speed. Once they got free of the ice pretty quickly, the sea swell began to rise. They were entirely dependent on Wolseley's navigation, which he was doing in an ad hoc manner. With no specialised tools, they were relying on dead reckoning, which is where you compare your speed and trajectory to work out your position rather than using objects or astronomy. The reason they couldn't rely on astronomical navigation was the polar winter. Sunlight was not commonly seen, and the constant storms meant that stars were also not a permanent fixation for navigation. The six men were set into a rotating watch of three. Two men would sail whilst one man would bail the water out and the other three would sleep in whatever space they could find below deck. What I won't relate in their entirety are the numerous and precise motions that they made in terms of navigation. What I will relate to you is that the sea got rougher and the temperatures lower such that the spray that lashed the deck would actually freeze into slick blocks of ice. So in addition to constantly bailing the water, they had to constantly hack the ice off their boat. Again, all of this is in non-waterproof clothes. They're constantly cold and soaked through and hot food is a rarity because they can't use the stoves. The crossing from Elephant Island to South Georgia took 16 days, there are thereabouts, and as they passed through the Drake Passage, they were sailing the roughest seas in the world in a boat barely designed for short emergency drifting. I've described it in emotive detail in the intro, but the best way to get this across is to tell you to go Google the following things. First of all, Google the reconstruction of the James Caird on Google Images to get an idea of how small and cramped and vulnerable the boat was, or look at the real thing. Then Google Drake Passage Waves on YouTube, ideally. See how modern icebreakers in all their technological glory are thrown around like ragdolls on the waves. Then, finally, Google a map of the Southern Ocean on Google Maps or even just an image. And I've already said how far it is, say 100 miles, 700 nautical miles. But just just look at how actually far it is. I did the series of Googlings and it really is a feat of near inhuman endurance that any of them survived. Those were Shackleton's family words, after which he named his flagship. By endurance, we conquer. So despite weather being awful, on the 10th of May they make their landing in South Georgia, and by the 15th they've moved to a slightly better location, but by then the James Caird was no longer seaworthy by any definition of the word, and the three who were unable to go on, Vincent, McCarthy and McNish, would need to spend more time recuperating in a safe harbour. So Shackleton took Worsley and Crean to make the final hike to the whaling station at Stromness, named after the town in Orkney. This would be the first documented land crossing of the mountains of South Georgia, though it's possible that Norwegian whalers had done it before. Regardless though, even if they had done it before, those whalers would have had skis and climbing equipment. Shackleton and his two companions made their own, and due to the uncharted nature of the mountains, they spent 36 hours constantly pressing ahead, then backtracking, then going forwards again when they found that the routes were impassable. At one point they rode a sled down a ledge to save time, and had it crashed, then they, and the three men on shore, and the men on Elephant Island, and the men in the Ross Sea, would all die. But that didn't happen. Shackleton and his final two friends had made it. On the 19th of May, there are thereabouts, they arrived at the whaling station with that matted hair, long beards, rotting clothes, frostbite, and their skin covered in accumulated blubber soot. Their hair was so long, by the way, that when they received fresh shaves, their own friends, who not 42 hours ago had seen them, didn't recognise them. That evening, a ship was sent to pick up the other three men, but rescuing the others would be a more involved affair. 
First, Shackleton set off for Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. There, he sent a communique to London, who denied him any equipment or ships until October. First, they tried the Uruguayan government, who gave them a ship to help. The weather was bad, though, and they had to go home empty-handed. They then tried some British ships, but were once again repulsed. On a third attempt with some ships provided by the Chilean government, they reached the Elephant Island Party. On Elephant Island, the situation was dire. One man, Lewis Rickson, had suffered a suspected heart attack, but survived, and the lovable stowaway Blackborough had suffered frostbite in his feet so bad that he had to have all the toes on his left foot amputated, though he was apparently good-natured about this. Due to the initial estimation of relief coming within a month, Wilde had forbade stockpiling, seeing this as a defeatist policy, which put him in odds with the storekeeper Thomas Ord Lees, an unpopular man around the camp. The longer things went on with no sign of rescue, though, the more desperate the men became. By the 23rd of August 1916, they'd abandoned the no stockpiling policy and the men were getting nervous as the penguins started getting less and less frequent. When it looked like they might actually have to try for Deception Island and were eyeing each other up, Shackleton arrived with the Chileans on the 30th of August. All the men on Elephant Island, as well as all of those with Shackleton, survived. Not a single man of the Endurance was lost. The same could not be said for the Aurora, however. Back in New Zealand, things changed for Stenhouse when Shackleton appeared. With his inspiring tale of improbable survival, the governments of Britain, New Zealand and Australia would agree to pick up the tab for rescuing the Ross Sea Party. The relief expedition, however, chose to sack Stenhouse. They blamed him for the poor choice of winter berth, and his continuing loyalty to Shackleton was becoming unpopular with the higher-ups. He learnt of his dismissal via a newspaper headline. On the 10th of January 1917, the Aurora, now almost entirely manned by a new crew, had returned to Antarctica to pick up the survivors of the Ross Sea Party. But they hadn't been so lucky. You see, back in 1915, when the Aurora had been set adrift, Anais Mackintosh had realised that they were likely going to face two years without relief, wearing, almost literally, the clothes on their backs. They continued with the depot-laying work, however, because they didn't know that Shackleton was now stuck in his own predicament. They went on with the assumption that they were needed to ensure his survival. This was difficult work, though. They were already digging up Scott's old depots for supplies to last them the two years they expected to stay. Whilst one team used dogs, Macintosh took Frank Wilde's brother Ernest and Arnold Spencer-Smith manhauling. The depot laying proved too much for Spencer-Smith, however. He died on the 9th of March 1916 and was buried in the ice. That journey ended up, by the way, being the longest sledging journey undertaken on any voyage up to that point at 198 days. But the party had not yet returned to Cape Evans, and of the five survivors of the depot laying party, three were physically weak and still recovering at a temporary base at Hut Point. Macintosh and another man, Victor Hayward, originally a finance clerk but his love for adventure had led him to a Canadian ranch and then to the Antarctic, decided to make a go at Cape Evans to collect more supplies for the weakened men. Against the urgent pleading of the three still at the temporary base, Macintosh and Hayward walked out for Cape Evans and never arrived. They either fell through cracks in the ice and drowned in the freezing water, or the ice they were on cracked off and drifted out to sea. Their bodies were never recovered. The picking up of the Ross Sea survivors, down three men, was the last of it. The Imperial Transantarctic Expedition was over, in what would on paper be called a colossal failure, but to the men who went on it could only be a sterling success. The Weddell Sea Party had survived an impossible boat journey, the inexperienced Stenhouse had managed to keep the Aurora afloat and go for help, and most of the men stuck in Antarctica for two years with no aid managed to make it out as well. Shackleton returned to Britain, to find that it had forgotten him. The Great War was now raging and had been for some time, and after taking some time to lecture in the US, almost no one noticed when he returned. 
Despite there being more expeditions after this, this is where the heroic age died, on the battlefields of the First World War. That same optimistic spark of romantic adventure and international cooperation and competition had been snuffed out and in its place were the morbid realities of the global conflict that had killed millions of people and brought the great empires of the world to the brink of ruin. Nobody wanted to hear about the trials and tribulations of an Antarctic explorer. There was just no appetite for it. That war ended up claiming three of the expedition. Tim McCarthy, who'd survived that open ocean voyage, and sailor Alfred Cheatham both died in action, and Ernest Wilde died of typhoid. The personal grudges also had lasting effects, Despite their sterling conduct resulting in their insubordination having been scrubbed from the expedition's log, both McNish and Vincent were denied recommendation for the Polar Medal by Shackleton, along with two others, which many of those on the expedition felt was unnecessarily cruel, given that it was their efforts that had saved the Weddell Sea Party. McNish ended up dying penniless in New Zealand in 1930. After being forgotten for decades, in 2004 his grave was rejuvenated, and a statue with the ship's cat that he had loved so much was added to it. His grandson stated that that statue with the cat would have meant more to him than the Polar Medal ever could have. After a brief service in the war and the Russian Civil War, Shackleton organised one final expedition to the Antarctic in 1919, but would never see the end of it. He died in South Georgia of a heart attack on the 5th of January 1922. With that death, the expedition was basically abandoned, and after Frank Wyatt led them on some sightseeing tours, including of Elephant Island, they just went home. With that, the heroic age of Antarctic exploration had come to an end. Almost all the romantic heroes of the age had either died or retired, and there were no more lofty goals left to achieve, save for the crossing of Antarctica, which was completed by a Commonwealth expedition in 1955-1958. This was also the first expedition to actually reach the South Pole, by the way, that Commonwealth one, overland since Amundsen and Scott. That should give you some idea as to the relative quiet that Antarctica had experienced after around two decades of frenzied and flurried exploration. But there we go. Picture wrap on Shackleton and the Heroic Age. So, what do we make about either of them? Well, Shackleton, known to his men as boss was certainly a survivor, that much is beyond doubt. He managed what almost no one could, and was one of the most accomplished explorers of the heroic age, having been on no fewer than four expeditions, leading three of them himself. His legacy was, however, relatively quickly forgotten when he died. He was the modern equivalent of two million pounds in debt at that time, and special funds had to be taken care of so that his family didn't go into destitution. Scott's tragic noble hero status had prevailed, and Amundsen outlived him. No prize for third place, it seems. That was until 1959. Alfred Lansing published Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage, a laudatory ode to the tale of heroism and survival. This prompted a number of other works praising Shackleton's leadership and heroism that helped bring some light and recognition to him. This positive turn towards Shackleton kind of accompanied the negative turn towards Scott that we talked about before. Critics lambasted the treatment of Scott, who had got him and those with him killed, as a noble hero, while Shackleton, who managed to rescue all of his men, at least in the Weddell Sea Party, was forgotten. Indeed, in the 2002 BBC poll of the 100 Greatest Britons, Shackleton was in 11th place, while Scott was all the way down in 54th place. 
Nowadays, Shackleton is seen as a model of leadership, usually. The University of Exeter offers a leadership course on him for his leadership school, and the US Navy uses him as a model for some of their officer training programs. In January 2013, a replica expedition managed to replicate the journey from Elephant Island to South Georgia as well as the crossing of South Georgia using period clothing and replica navigational tools, replica rations, replica versions of the James Caird. Its leader, the environmentalist and explorer Tim Jarvis, had previously replicated Mawson's trek, though with more modern equipment. If there had been any criticisms of Shackleton's leadership, it was that despite his cool, calm and collected image, he did let his emotions get the better of him from time to time. For instance, his explosive anger when he found the stowaway, despite already being undermanned compared to what he'd expected, and his holding of grudges and denial of the polar medals for his four men. Given that most of the men who went on Antarctic expeditions got a polar medal, and these men had been, with a few niggles, stuck with him in the worst conditions and stuck with him and been important to both his survival and all the others, the denying of them that small honour was seen by many as weirdly cruel and unnecessary. There's also the fact that so much of his career was motivated by a desire just to outdo everyone else. He'd organised Nimrod in part to not be outdone by Scott, and when Scott went and made himself a martyr, he had to cross Antarctica. That rivalry persisted between the two men even in death. To begin with, Shackleton was forgotten and Scott was praised, and then as Scott was criticised, Shackleton was rediscovered. But what do we make of the heroic age? Was it all worth it in the end? Well, you tell me. I'm not making a judgement call right here, I'm merely going to lay out some of the facts as we've covered them. The heroic age began at a time when imperialism was going nuts. A mere decade had passed since the Berlin Conference had initiated the scramble for Africa and proving your mettle was all that people from those empires cared about initially. There was science to be done, sure, and a lot of that science was very important. For instance, we only really know about plate tectonics and continental drift because of some of the fossils found in Antarctica. But what defined the heroic age was the heroes. And I said before this season about how much I hate great man theory of history, I think it's stupid in general, but here, it sort of applies. Because without those romantic figures, the dashing explorers willing to put their bodies through immense physical torment, for prizes as nebulous as being the first, you don't have the heroic age, it's a construct. Even though the men under their commands were the ones doing most of the work, the leaders are the ones who are the heroes and they create the heroic age. And after them, you didn't. The First World War, to me, was what killed the heroic age. That loss of innocence. Which arguably those same empires never had. But innocence in the eyes of the people on the home front who were the ones who were watching and recording and reciting these stories, who never really had to see any of the damage inflicted by the lust for power. When Shackleton leaves in 1914, Heroism has crescendoed, Scott has died a noble hero, and Amundsen is the controversial toast of the exploration community, and the war has just begun. But war is a grand adventure that will be over by Christmas, and is a great chance for you and your mates to have some fun in Flanders. When Shackleton gets back, he has been through the ringer. Him and his men have experienced the most hostile environment on the planet, and not all of them have made it out, the Ross Sea Party. After pushing themselves to the very edge of death, they scrape back home, and no one cares. No one notices. When de Gerlache got home, they rolled out the red carpet. One season stuck in the ice trip receives all the fanfare Belgium can muster. But now no one cares. How could you, when those same beautiful fields that de Gerlache probably strolled in, adorned in his medals, were now churned up charnel houses littered with a million dead men? By the time Shackleton dies, it's already over. 
That expedition is considered to be the last of the heroic age, but it's a breathy gasp of a dying man. Remember the radio operator Sidney Jeffries from Mawson's expedition, the one with the ominous pronouncements in the courtroom who died in a mental asylum? I get similar vibes from him as many shell-shocked soldiers in the First World War, what we would today call post-traumatic stress disorder. That feeling that even though you physically arrive back home, you never really left the trenches or Antarctica. You're still there, somehow, and you can never really leave. That's kind of the heroic age in a nutshell. None of the explorers were ever satisfied. They never could be. Their goals were intangible, their desires unfulfillable. I'll end this season by paraphrasing the final line from that Jules Verne novel I opened us with in episode 1, Captain Hatteras, to say that the men of the heroic age are still there, and they march forever southward. This episode of Demystify was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in Season 5. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.